Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're there in Amos chapter number 8. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through a chapter-by-chapter study in the book of Amos. And we are almost done with the book of Amos. We're in Amos chapter 8. Of course, there's nine chapters in the book of Amos. And it seems like every week as I've been studying the book of Amos, and it's like this, not just for Amos, it's for many books of the Bible. It seems like at the beginning of the week, when I start studying the chapter for our Wednesday night Bible study, I I always have this thought, and I think to myself, what in the world am I going to say about this chapter? And then by the time Wednesday rolls around and I've spent a couple of days studying it, um, I end up having more material than I can cover in one sermon. Uh, And that's just how the Word of God is. You start digging into it and you find that it's alive. Uh, So we've got a lot lot to go over tonight, and I hope you'll just be ready to just uh, go through the Bible and study the Bible together. But uh, tonight we are in Amos chapter number 8. And of course, if you remember last week, uh, we began a section in this book, uh, the ending sections, chapter 7, 8, and 9, where we see five visions that God gives to the prophet Amos. We saw three of them, three of the five visions last week in in chapter number uh, 7. And of course, we saw the grasshoppers and the fire and the plumb line. And then tonight, we're going to see one vision in chapter 8, and it is the vision of the basket of the summer fruit. You're there in Amos chapter 8, look down at verse number 1. The Bible says, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. The word showed there again is a reference to the fact that this is a vision that Amos is having. So we've seen his preaching, but now we're seeing the visions that God gave him. And I said... And notice, excuse me, uh, verse 1, and behold, a basket of summer fruits, verse 2, and he said, Amos, what seest thou? So we have, of course, the Lord speaking to the prophet Amos, and he asked him, what is it that you're seeing? What seest thou? I like the straightforwardness of Amos. There's no messing around with him. He's just a clear, straightforward communicator. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. All right, so that's pretty straightforward there. He saw a basket of summer fruit. He said, I see a basket of summer fruit. And then notice there in verse 2, Then said the Lord unto me, The end has come upon my people of Israel, and I will not again pass by them anymore. Now, uh, keep, keep place there in Amos chapter 8. Obviously, that's our text for tonight. But go with me just real quickly to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23. And let me just uh, kind of explain a little bit about this basket of summer fruit. Leviticus 23, if you start at the beginning of the Bible, you've got, of course, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus 23, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 10. Leviticus 23, 10, the Bible says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priests. I want you to notice, because we saw in Amos chapter 8 that the vision that we see in chapter 8, the fourth of the five visions, is a vision of a basket of summer fruits. The Lord showed unto me, the Bible says, Amos, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And he said, a basket of summer fruits. Now, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament had several different harvests throughout the years. They harvested different things at different times. And here in Leviticus 23, we're actually given a list of several of the harvests because the harvests are connected to the feasts that they would have. And here we see in verse 10, the first fruits of your harvest. And this was the first harvest of the year. 
Of course, it represents the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't have time to go into that. I preached about that when we were studying the book of Leviticus together. But we have the spring harvest that is the first fruits of the year. Then skip down to verse 15. Notice what the Bible says, And you shall count unto you, this is from the spring harvest, this is, of course, the representing the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we celebrate during Easter time. Verse 15, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Notice what he says, Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. So you have the first spring harvest of the first fruits. And then he says, I want you to count seven Sabbaths shall ye complete. Notice verse 16, Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, Shall you number 50 days? So he says, after that first harvest, I want you to number seven Sabbaths. Of course, we know that the Sabbath was uh, uh, completing a one, a one week, a seven-day week. So when you have seven Sabbaths, that's going to be 49 days. He says, once you get there, I want you to number 50 days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Look down at verse 22, just the first part of verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land... And we're going to come back and look at the rest of that, but I just want you to notice that the context is about reaping the harvest. And here's what I want you to understand. They had a spring harvest, which was the first fruits. Of course, that was a picture of the resurrection Easter. And then they were to number seven Sabbaths. And once they got past the 50-day mark, then they had another harvest. This would be the summer harvest. And of course, this is aligns itself with the day of Pentecost in the New Testament. The reason that the day of Pentecost or the celebration of Pentecost is called Pentecost is because it was 50 days after this harvest of the first fruits. And I'm just showing this to show you that they had a spring harvest, they had a summer harvest. And when here, when we see, go back to Amos chapter 8, that the Lord is showing unto Amos a basket of summer fruits, the idea is that the summer harvest has already ended and they've got this fruit from that harvest. They've already gone through the spring harvest. They've harvested that. They, they've, they've ate off that. They've celebrated off that. Then they've had the summer harvest and now they have this basket of summer fruit. The idea is that the fruit is ripening and it's going to run out of time. You can't just have fruit sitting there forever. You've got to use it or you will lose it. And that's the idea that is being brought here in Amos chapter 8, verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come. He said, in the same way that this fruit is going to ripen and eventually rot, he says, the end has come upon my people of Israel, and I will not again pass by them anymore. Uh, go, go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 8. And do me a favor, when you get to Jeremiah, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Jeremiah chapter 8. I meant to tell you to keep your place in Leviticus 23 as well, um, but we're going to go back to Leviticus too if you want to find that as well. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. Notice here how this is highlighted, this idea of the summer uh, the basket of the summer's fruit, because this idea of the summer fruit comes up in other places in the Old Testament. So I want you to understand, it pictures the fact that the harvest is over, the end has come, time is running out. Leviticus, excuse me, Jeremiah 8, verse 20. Notice what the Bible says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. So I want you to notice the idea is that when the summer ends and the harvest is over, if you're not saved, and of course this is, prophetically speaking, of the great harvest of the rapture, 
that if we're not saved, the harvest's over and the summer's ended and we're not saved, then that's going to be a problem, of course. You want to make sure you're in that harvest. But the idea when you see the summer is that time is running out. Remember, Jesus in the New Testament talked about the fact that we must work while there is day because the night cometh. The summer is ending. It's going to grow dark. The summer is going to end and you will run out of time. So that's the context in which we start Amos chapter 8. Go back to Amos if you would. It's a context of coming judgment. It's a context of the end is coming. You're running out of time, and God is going to deal with his people. And, of course, the takeaway for us is this, is that though God is a patient God, there is an end with God. There comes a time, the Bible says, that the Spirit will not always strive with man. We know that for all of us, that will be death. The Bible says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this judgment. But even more than that, there comes a point in the lives of Christians and churches where God says, enough is enough, I'm going to have to judge you now, and the end has come. This is what the prophet Amos is saying to the children of Israel and what uh, is being communicated to them through this uh, vision of the basket of the summer, of the summer fruits. Now, here's what I want you to understand. I've explained this to you several times as we've gone through these prophetic books, There's often a dual meaning whenever you read these passages on prophecy, and that's what we're going to see here in Amos chapter 8. There are two judgments being spoken of. One is a current or contemporary judgment that's literally physically going to come to the children of Israel during their lifetime, but then we'll also see that there are glimpses of the coming judgment and the judgments of the end time. So let's begin by looking at the current judgment tonight. And if you're taking notes, you can divide your notes into two sections, the current judgments. I always encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week. You can write some things down. We'll look at it in two different sections, the current judgment and the coming judgment, the current judgment and the coming judgment. And notice we begin with the current judgment. Amos chapter 8 and verse 3, there's several things we see here regarding the current judgment. First, we see the ruin of their judgment. Verse 3, notice what he says, and the songs of the temple shall be howlings. In that day. And that's quite a, descript, a description there. The idea is that in the temple there were those who would be singing and playing instruments. They would be uh, uh, singing and, and having religious worship. Of course, we know that these people are not right with God. They're going through the motions, but their hearts are actually not right with the Lord. But that would not change the fact that the music that they are producing would be very beautiful. And we saw earlier in the book of Amos that it would be patterned after the music of King David who wrote the, most of the book of Psalms. And here, uh, Amos is telling us that the songs of the temple are going to be turned into howling. I mean, howling, when I, when I see the word howling, I think of like a dog, you know, howling. And what he's saying is that when my judgment comes, it will be so harsh and it will be so terrible that you're, you're not going to hear singing, but the voices that you normally would hear singing because of the terror of the Lord, it's going to be howling. There's going to be screaming and yelling. Notice he says, and the songs of the temple shall be howling in that day, saith the Lord God. Why is there going to be howling? Notice, there shall be many dead bodies in every place. And the picture that Amos was painting is really a horrific picture if you think about it. The idea, and when I read this and when I imagine this in my mind's eye, I imagine that there would be men and women bowed down at the bodies of loved ones and looking up to heaven and howling and screaming and fear and terror. 
because of the judgment of God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. So we see the ruin of their judgment in verse number three. But in verses four, five, and six, I want you to notice the reason for their judgment. There's several reasons why God is going to bring this judgment upon these people. The first is that they took advantage of the poor. Notice verse 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moons be gone, and that we may sell corn, and the Sabbaths that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small, and the shackle great, and falsifying the balance by deceit. Notice verse 6 that ye may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. Of course, as we've been going through the book of Amos, we've learned that the theme of the book of Amos is justice. And, and what Amos really emphasizes is the fact that these people were doing injustice to the weak and specifically to the poor. They were taking advantage of the poor. That's what we see here in verse 4. He says, Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land fail. Verse 6, that, you, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. They were taking advantage of the poor and they were mistreating the poor. Now, real quickly, go back to Leviticus 23. I meant to have you keep your place there. And I apologize, I didn't tell you that. But go back to Leviticus 23. Let me just highlight a couple of things. First of all, we've seen this idea of the needy for a pair of shoes. We saw that earlier in the book of Amos. And the idea is this, that the rich sold the poor into slavery in exchange for the money that they owed, even though the amount that was owed was an insignificant amount. It was the price of a pair of shoes. It was something that they could have honestly forgiven, but they chose not to. They were harsh with the poor. They were harsh with the needy, which is why Amos says that ye swallow up the needy, ye make the poor of the land to fail, ye buy the poor for silver and the needy for the pair of shoes, and the idea is that it matters how we treat people. Look, in business, it matters how you treat people. It matters how we treat people in our lives and in the world, and especially the poor. In Leviticus 23, we see that they were supposed to take care of the poor. Notice Leviticus 23 and verse 22. Remember, we saw in Leviticus 23 the different harvests, the spring harvest, the summer harvest. In verse 22, the Bible says, And when you reap the harvest of your land... Thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field. I want you to notice what God is instructing the children of Israel to do. He says, you've got land and you've got a harvest. You go ahead and harvest that land, but I don't want you to make clean riddance of the corners of thy field. What does that mean? He says, I don't want you to go like an inspector and make sure that you've got every fruit or every stalk of corn that you've cleaned up everything. He said, go ahead and just leave the corners the way they are. Notice what he says. And when you reap the harvest of the land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of the field. When thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleanings. What is a gleaning? A gleaning is something that was left over, something that you missed the first time, something that maybe as you were bringing in the harvest, you might have dropped some of it. And God says, I don't want you to make a clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleanings of thy harvest. Why does God say this? Notice, thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. What we're reading about in Leviticus 23, 22 was God's welfare system. 
It was how God took care of the poor. And here's what he told the rich who had a big harvest. He said, go ahead and harvest the land, but don't go through there and just look at every little corner and make sure if you leave a little behind, that's okay. If you realize you didn't get it all, leave it there for the poor because they were supposed to take care of the poor, not take advantage of the poor. Now, what I like about God's welfare system is that notice he doesn't say, let's institute some sort of a government uh, system where we're going to go through and grab all the corners and the gleanings, and then we're going to ship it to people. Notice the poor were expected to, at the very least, hey, if they're poor and it was not their fault, God said, I want to help you. I want to take care of you. But notice, at the very least, they were expected to get up and get to the field and go look for what was left for them. It wasn't just sent to them. So God is always perfect. God is always right. His system is always the best system. But I want you to notice that they were not supposed to take advantage of the poor. They were supposed to try to take care of the poor, not enable. They weren't to be enablers. They weren't supposed to send them checks for doing nothing. But they were supposed to be generous and to leave some and leave it on purpose that those who needed it might be able to find it and, 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 and be taken care of. And what God is upset with the children of Israel in the book of Amos, go back to Amos chapter 8, is that verse 4, ye have swallowed up the needy, ye make the poor of the land to fail. He says, you buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. He says, you're not being generous and taking care of the poor. You're taking advantage of them. Notice verse 6, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. He says, even just the, the, what's left over, the, the, the refuse. He says, even just what, what you should have left there for the poor, you've taken that and you're trying to make a profit off of that. And you know, the, the idea is that we should be generous, and yes, go to work, make money, harvest what you need to harvest, but it's okay to leave. You don't have to, you don't have to squeeze every penny, is the idea, that you can try to be generous and help people and leave for others. So the reasons for their judgment was that they took advantage of the poor. That's not the only thing. Notice verse 5. Another reason for their judgment was that they saw the commandments of God as grievous. Look at verse 5. Saying... When will the new moon be gone? I want you to understand this. The new moon that's being referred to here, they're asking, when will the new moon be gone? Why do they want the new moon to be gone? That we may sell corn. Notice, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat. These are religious observances. The new moon, the Sabbath days, these were days that they were supposed to observe unto the Lord. And they were days in which they were not to work. And Amos is calling them out on the fact that while they're going through the motions of religion, while they're observing the new moons and observing the Sabbath days, in their hearts, they're asking the question, when will the new moon be gone? When is this going to be over? Why do you want it to be over? This is supposed to be a day where you rest. This is supposed to be a day where you celebrate God. This is supposed to be a day where you're not out there trying to make money, but you're focusing on the God that has provided the money for you. But their attitude is, when is this going to be over that we may sell corn? And when is the Sabbath day going to be over that we may set forth wheat? Because they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath day. They weren't supposed to sell on the new moon. But they're going through these motions of religion, but their heart is far from God. They see the commandments of God as grievous or as hindrances. And really in their heart, they're just saying, I wish this was over. 
And you say, how does this apply to the average Christian today? You know, it applies to the average Christian who sits in church on a Sunday morning thinking, when is this going to be over? I've got things to do. I've got places to be. This idea that the commandments of God are, are grievous and there's some sort of a hindrance, go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. If you go backwards from the book of Revelation, you go back, you have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. Do me a favor, when you get there, put a ribbon or a bookmark there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. You should have your place in 1 John and you should have your place in, in, uh, in uh, the book of... What book did I need you in? Jeremiah. You can lose your place in Leviticus. We're not going to go back to Leviticus. Go to Jeremiah. Keep your place in Jeremiah. Keep your place in 1 John 5. Look at verse 3. 1 John 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Notice what the Bible says. And his commandments are not grievous. Amen. See that word grievous? It means causing severe pain, suffering, or sorrow. Oftentimes, Christians will act as though the commandments of God are grievous. Oftentimes, young people who grow up in church will act like the commandments of God are grievous, and they'll have these attitudes like, well, I wish I could watch that, that movie. I, I wish I could watch that superhero movie. My parents won't let me watch. Let me tell you something. Superheroes are fake, and they're stupid. Why, why can't I listen to that music? Why can't I have that phone? Why can't I go to that place? Why can't, and they act like the commandments of God are grievous. Let me tell you something, young people. The commandments of God are not grievous. You want to know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. You want to know what's grievous is being enslaved to drugs and alcohol and being in prison and being a homeless bum. Hey, that's what's grievous. Go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. It's good for you. And to have this attitude that says, well, when is this going to be over? Why do I have to go to this? Why do I have to do that? Why, why, when, when can I finally get out of here? When can I finally graduate and, and turn 18 so I can leave home and do what I want? Hey, you're a fool. To have this attitude that says, when will the new moons be gone that we may sell corn? This attitude that says, I'm, I, I got to go through the motions. I come to church because my wife makes me. I come to church because my husband, hey, why don't you just love God? Amen. And look, this is this idea of people who are looking for any excuse to not do the things of God. Looking for any excuse to skip out on church. Now look, if you're here tonight and you're, and you're new to our church or, or you're, you're coming back to church, I'm not talking to you. Uh, we're, we're, we're glad you're here. Amen. And we're glad that you're here on a Wednesday night and all of that. But, but those of you who should know better... Those of you who should already understand, you, 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 you're, you're a volunteer, you're a leader here at Verity Baptist Church, you've committed to do certain things, and then it's always funny to me how people are just looking for any excuse to skip out on soul winning, looking for any excuse to skip out on church, looking for any excuse to skip out on Sunday night church or Wednesday night church, and look, it's this idea that says, well, when is the new moon going to be gone that we may go do what I want to do? When are the Sabbath days going to be over that I could do what I actually want to do? And it's always silly, you know, uh, sometimes you ought to consider actually writing or speaking the excuses that we give, and you might realize how stupid they are. I always think it's funny, and look, if, you, if this is you, I don't know of any, I'm using this illustration right now because I've searched in my mind and no one has used this excuse recently that I can think of, so if you've used this excuse recently, I don't know that, all these disclaimers, because people like to think that I'm God and I know everything, 
But you know, it's always, it's always funny to me when it's like, oh, we can't be in church because the baby's sick. And it's like, all of you, I mean, a family of eight. Eight, two grown adults, teenagers, you know, just, just all, the entire family has to stay home because the baby's sick? You know what's worse than that? We all, we all have to stay home because the husband's sick. The husband's sick? He's a grown man. I think he can make it through an hour and a half without having his mama, I mean his wife. I'm just saying, this is the Christianity that upset God. This idea that when is it going to be over? Any excuse, look, any excuse to not do what God wants us to do. And here's the question I have for you, men. And I'm not mad at you, but I am trying to pick on you. I can't come to church because the baby's sick. Oh, do you not go to work when the baby's sick? Oh, well, well, no, I got to work. Well, you know, God is more important than work. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that we should grow into a Christianity that actually loves the Lord. And the commandments of God are not grievous. And we're in church because we love God's people. And we love the word of God. And we want to go soul winning because we love people. And we want to see them uh, reach with the gospel. Hey, I don't read the Bible because nobody makes me read the Bible. I just love God. But these people said, when will the new moons be gone that we may sell corn? On the Sabbath day that we may set forth. When's this vision offering going to be over? Because I don't want to hear about giving anymore. They saw the commandments of God as grievous. Look at Amos chapter 8 and verse 5. Notice the third reason for the judgment. They were deceptive and crooked in their financial dealings. Saying... When will the new moons be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbaths that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, falsifying the balances by deceit. These people were deceptive and crooked in their finances. Go back, uh, go, go to Deuteronomy 25. If you kept your place in Leviticus, you got, uh, after Leviticus, you have numbers in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 13. Here's what the Bible says. Thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights. And a great and a small. Thou shalt not have in thine house diverse measures, a great and a small. But thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and a just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. God was judging these people because of the fact that not only did they see his commandments as grievous, not only did they take advantage of the poor, but they were deceptive and crooked in their finances. They had an ephah, that's a measurement, which was small, meaning it was smaller than it should have been for an actual ephah, and a shekel, that's a measurement, that was great, meaning it was greater than it should have been for a shekel, and the falsifying of the balances by deceit. They had these balances that they, it said shekel and it said ephah, but it wasn't actually the sizes and they used it to rip people off. And God says, thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights. You know that weight, diverse means different. You know that weight shouldn't be different. Five pounds should be five pounds every time. Ten pounds should be ten pounds every time. He said, I don't want you to have diverse weights, a great and a small. Thou shalt not have in thine house diverse measures, a great and a small. One cup is one cup every time. Half a cup is half a cup. It should be half a cup every time. These people had measurements that said a certain thing, but the measurement was actually different. And they used it to rip people off, to get over on people, to get more and pay less. They were deceptive. 
You say, well, today we don't deal with that and we don't have those type of measurements. Here's the application for you today. You shouldn't have diverse weight. You know, your life should be consistent. Amen. There shouldn't be a different you at church and a different you at work. Amen. There shouldn't be a different you at church and a different you at home. To the best of your ability, we ought to be the same. Amen. Don't have diverse weights, small and great in your house. Don't have diverse, diverse measurements, great and small in thine house. Go back to Amos chapter 8. We see the ruin of their judgment. We see the reasons for their judgment. And I want you to notice the remembrance of their judgment. The remembrance of their judgment. Look at verse 6, Amos chapter 8, verse 6. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse for the wheat. We've talked about that. Verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely. Notice what he says. I will never forget any of their works. That's an interesting statement there. I will never forget any of their works. You know, the Bible teaches that God will either remember everything you've done that's wrong, or he will forget everything you've done that's wrong. And you and I get to decide which part of the coin we can be on. Go to Hebrews real quickly. You kept your place in 1 John. You go backwards. You have 1 John, 2 Peter, 1 Peter, James, and Hebrews. 1 John, 2 Peter, 1 Peter, James, and Hebrews. God looked down at these people and he said, I will never forget any of their works. Say, why did God say that to them? Because they refused him. And look, here are the options. God can either remember everything you've done wrong if you refuse his way of salvation, if you refuse his his mode of salvation, and you want to pay for your own salvation, God says, that's fine. I'll just make sure to remember everything. And at the judgment, you'll be found wanting. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or God says, I can forget everything you've done if you place your faith in my son. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. I'd rather be here. I don't know about you. But if the options are Amos 8, 7, I will never forget any of their works. Or the options are Hebrews 8, 12, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I'd rather be there. I'd rather place my faith in Jesus Christ and know that my sins and my iniquities will he remember no more. Here's how he says it in Psalm. You have to turn there. Psalm 103 and verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. The beautiful thing about that illustration is that the east never catches up to the west. If you start going east in a round globe, you'll never get to the point where you start going west. You'll always be going east. If you start going west, you'll never get to the point where you're going east. You'll always be going west. And as far as the east is from the west, so far they remove our transgressions from us. We get to choose whether God will remember or not remember. Amos 8, 7, they refused God. They refused his faith. They refused to believe on him, to call upon him for salvation. He says, I will never forget any of their works. At the great white throne, the books will be open. He will look at the books. He will look at the fact that they are a sinner. And he will say, I have found you wanting. I have found you guilty. There is none that doeth good. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But for those of us that are saved, when the books of our life are open, 
And he looks through the book and he finds Roger Jimenez. He looks at page one and all he sees is the blood of Christ. He turns over to page two and all he sees is the blood of Christ. And he turns over to page three and all he sees is the blood of Christ. And I'm covered in the blood of Christ. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. It's a beautiful place to be. But it's a scary place for these people when God says, I will never forget any of their works. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 just real quickly. Just to show you that God can forget the bad and remember the good. You say, how does God do that? I don't know. But I'm glad he does. (laughs) Hebrews 6 and verse 10, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which he have showed towards his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Go back to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. So remember in this chapter we see two judgments. The current judgment, we saw the ruin of their judgment. Their songs were turned into howling. We saw the reason for their judgment. They took advantage of the poor. They saw the commandments of God as grievous. And they were deceptive and crooked in their financial dealings. And then we saw the remembrance of their judgment. That God says, I will remember. I will not forget. And then in verse 8, we have a shift. And in verse 8, we are now no longer dealing with the current judgment, but we're looking ahead to the coming judgment. And what we see in these verses is a glimpse of the end times. Let me just quickly show that to you. Amos chapter 8, look at verse 8. Shall not, and I want you to just highlight certain things in this chapter. You can literally highlight it with a pen or underline it with a pen if you'd like in your Bible, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, or I just want you to remember these things. But in verse 8, he says, shall not the land tremble for this? The first thing I want you to notice, we see the land trembling. And everyone mourn. I want you to notice that everyone will be mourning that dwelleth therein. And it shall rise up holy as a flood. I want you to notice, we see uh, the land trembling, everyone mourning. We see a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned, that's the flood, as by the flood of Egypt, verse 9, and it shall come to pass in that day. Usually when you see that phrase, in that day, it is a reference of the day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. So, Amos chapter 8, I, honestly, I, I haven't heard a lot of preaching out of the book of Amos. And so I don't know what most people consider, if most people would agree with me, uh, that this is a reference to the coming judgment. And I'm not even, a, a, you know, just dogmatic. If you have a different opinion on it, that's fine with me. But it's interesting to me because what I see here is some characteristics that resemble the rapture. We see the land trembling, everyone mourning, a flood... And we see the sun, it goes down at noon, and I will darken the earth in a clear day. Now, let's just contrast that to the day of the Lord and the day of the rapture. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Last book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. Revelation chapter 6, look at verse 12. We got to do this quickly, all right? Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Revelation 6, 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. This, of course, if you're familiar with the seals of Revelation, this is the day of the Lord and the rapture. And lo, notice, there was a great earthquake. Amos 8.8, shall not the land tremble? If you want to have your place in both, your finger in both places, Amos 8, Revelation 6, shall not the land tremble for this? 
What do we see at the sixth seal? Lo, there was a great earthquake. Notice, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Amos 8, 9, I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. So we see in both instances we have an earthquake, we have the sun being darkened, Revelation 6, 13, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree cast to their untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. There's a reference to the earth trembling. Look at Revelation 12 and verse 15. Revelation 12, 15. So we saw in Amos 8, the land trembled. We saw in Revelation 6 and verse 12, there was a great earthquake, verse 14, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. We saw in Amos 8, verse 9, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in a clear day. We saw in Revelation 6, 12, the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. I'm going through this quickly because I'm running out of time. We saw in Amos 8, 8, and it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned. There's a mention of a flood, as by the flood of Egypt. In Revelation 12, 15, and the serpent cast out, his, cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So I just want you to notice that if Amos 8.8 is not prophetically speaking about the end times, which I believe it is, and I think I'm going to give you some, uh, if this isn't convincing enough, I'll give you some evidence that, that definitely is convincing. But there's definitely a resemblance here. Because you have the land trembling in Amos 8.8 and a great earthquake in Revelation 6. You have uh, the, the flood in Amos 8.8. We see the flood in Revelation 12. You see the uh, sun going down at noon and darkness on the earth in a clear day. And then we see in Amos 8.9 and we see in Revelation 6.12, the sun became black as the hair and the moon became as blood. Keep your finger there in Amos. Go back to, excuse me, Revelation. Go back to Amos chapter 8. The characteristics of the rapture. But we also see the characteristics of the coming of the Lord. Now, the ones regarding the rapture, I'll give you that maybe those are similar, um, but not specific. I think it's definitely picturing the rapture, but this you can't get away from. Amos 8 and verse 10. And I will turn your feasts into mournings and your songs into lamentations. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. And I will make it... As the morning, notice this phrase, as the morning of an only son, and the end thereof as a bitter day. Now, I want you to notice this phrase, as the morning of an only son. Because when God brings up specific phrases on purpose throughout the Bible, he does that, that we might connect the dots and see a point that's being made. In Amos 8.10, Amos says that this day will be as the morning of an only son. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. If you start at the end of the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. Right before Malachi, you have the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12, look at verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look on me whom they have pierced. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that was pierced. 
He says, and they shall look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as, don't miss it, one mourneth for his only son. So Amos 8.10 tells us as the mourning of an only son. Zechariah 12.10 says as one mourneth for his only son. But I want you to notice, Zechariah 12.10 not only says as one mourneth for his only son, but it also has this famous prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 7. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. We're going we're to bring this all around. It's gonna, you'll see how it's all connected. Revelation 1-7. Behold, he, this is Jesus, cometh with clouds. Notice what it says. And every eye shall see him. Zechariah 12-10 says, And they shall look upon me, and they also which pierced him. Zechariah 12-10 says, Whom they have pierced. So here we see, and he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also will pierce him. So here's the point that I'm trying to make. Amos 8.10 connects to Zechariah 12.10 because Amos 8.10 says, as the morning of an only son. Zechariah 12.10 says, as one mourneth for his only son. Zechariah 12.10 connects to Revelation 1.7 because Zechariah 12.10 says, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Revelation 1.7 says, every eye shall see him and they also would pierce them. But wait a minute, Revelation 1.7 connects back to Amos chapter 8 and verse 8 because Revelation 1.7 says, and all the kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Amos 8.8, look at it, shall not the land, Amos 8.8, tremble for this and everyone mourn. So it's all connected, and this is the point that I'm making. This is about coming judgment. Now, the reason I'm making a big deal about this is because there's a really famous passage coming up in Amos 8.8, 8, probably the most famous passage of this chapter, maybe of the whole book. And I want you to understand the context in which it is. I believe that Amos 8, 8, 9, 10 is a reference to the characteristics of the rapture and of the coming of the Lord. Why is that important? Because it is a reference to the removal of God's people. When the sixth seal is open, when the sun turns dark, when the earth quakes, when, when all these events happen, is when God's people are going to be raptured out of here. Now, we see a removal of God's people, and then I want you to notice what happens in verses 11 and 12 of Amos chapter 8. Behold, the days come. Have they came yet? Not yet, but they're coming. The days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Now, I want you to notice, usually when people come to Amos 8, 11, and 12, they make the application that this is the secular world, and this is America, and I'm not against people making that application. I think there's definitely application that could be made there. In fact, I'm going to make that a very similar application here in a minute, but I want you to understand that the primary application of Amos 8, 11, and 12 is that after the sun is darkened, the earthquakes, the flood comes, and God's people are removed, then there's also going to be a famine of the word of God. I will send a famine in the land 
He says, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. He says in verse 12, and they shall wander from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They shall uh, run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. There's coming a day when, and of course, we know that once the rapture happens and once the Antichrist uh, and the mark of the beast, it's going to be a reprobate culture. And the Bible is saying that there's coming a day when people, if someone is searching, because we know that not everyone's going to take the mark of the beast and not everyone's going to be saved. There's going to be some just unsaved, secular, worldly people on this earth. And they might be seeking, but they're not going to find it. There's going to be a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. These little left behind movies where people are like, oh, they're going to go on YouTube and watch T.D. Jakes and get saved. No one's getting saved watching T.D. Jakes now. Much less then. There's going to be a hearing, a famine of the words of the Lord to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. This is after the rapture. And look, America is obviously wicked, but is this true of America today? You can seek the word of God today. It's 180 plus of you here tonight in church for a Bible study where you're hearing the word of God. Now, this is the contrast to the millennial reign. Let me just contrast that to the millennial reign. Go to Jeremiah 31. Did you keep your place in Jeremiah? Jeremiah 31, look at verse 34. If you didn't keep your place in Jeremiah, if you go backwards, you, have, you go past Amos, Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 34. During the wrath of God... The Bible says, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of the hearing of the word of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to even to the east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Now contrast that to the millennial reign of Christ after the wrath of God, when Jesus comes to this earth physically and establishes his kingdom, Jeremiah 31, 34, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor. Do you understand what the Bible is saying here? There's going to come a day when soul winning is not going to be needed. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. No one's going to say, hey, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities. Notice how it's all connected. And I will remember their sins no more. There's coming a day on this earth when you won't have to tell somebody, hey, know the Lord for they shall all know me. But right before that millennial reign, there's going to come a day when people who want to seek the word of the Lord shall not find it. You say, well, what's the application for us? Go to Hosea. Hosea chapter 4. If you're there in Jeremiah, go past Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. I believe that this is a reference to a coming day. The day is come, saith the Lord God. But unfortunately today, there is a voluntary famine of the word of God. Though it's available. Though you can literally go down to the 99 cent store and for a dollar and 15 cents purchase the word of God today. There is a famine of the word of God. Not because it's not available, but it's because people are not interested. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Hear the word of the Lord. I I love that little phrase. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy. You know what that means? 
The Bible says, God has beef with you. God has a problem with you, children of Israel. God, you say, what is God's problem with his own people? And by the way, today, you're the children of Israel. You're the people of God. So hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That's not talking about the secular sinful world. It's talking about Christians, God's people who are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. Notice how it's all connected. I will also forget thy children. Let me tell you something. There's coming a day when people will not be able to find the word of God. They will not be able to read the word of God. They won't find the preaching of the word of God. But that day is not today. So if you're not getting the word of God, it's because you're not choosing to. There is a voluntary famine of the reading of the word of God. And again, it shows up in our Christian living. It shows up in your church attendance. It shows up in how willing, how, how flippant we are about just, ah, oh, just skip Wednesday night Bibles. I oh, just skip Sunday night church. I oh, just skip Sunday morning church. I oh, just skip soul winning. I don't need it. Uh, you know, well, when's it going to be over? It's already 816. Why is he still preaching? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The Bible says, and God says, and what to God, that at Verity Baptist Church, there'd be a group of people who would thirst and hunger for the things of God. Amen. And say, I want the word of God. I want to uh, uh, hear the word of God. I want to read the word of God. I want to memorize the word of God. I want to live the word of God. Amen. Job said, neither have, I, uh, neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips. I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy words were unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Jesus said this, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And here's all I'm telling you, is if you and I had a thirst for the things of God, if you and I had a hunger for the things of God, it would show up in our Bible reading. It would show up in our church attendance. It would show up in us talking about Jesus to the unsaved world. It would, you, you have it available. Why don't you make use of it? Because there's coming a day when people will want it and not be able to find it. But that's not this day. This day, the problem is you have it, but you won't read it. You have it, but you're looking for every excuse to not be faithful to the house of God. You have the gospel, but you're looking for every opportunity and excuse to not present it to a lost and dying world. So he says in Amos chapter 8, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. I do believe that's prophetic, but I've got to ask you the question. Are you living in that verse right now? A famine of the word of God. 
Or will you be like Job who says, I will esteem thy words. He says, I'm going to esteem these words more than my necessary food. I'm not, I, I, I don't go a day, I don't think any of you in this room, I don't think anybody in this room goes a day without eating. How many days do we go without reading and eating and feasting from the word of God? Why are we so flippant? Look, I, I'm just telling you, if, if I were you, I'd, I'd make, anytime, anytime the word of God is going to be open and a man's going to preach God's word, I'd make it a priority to be there. You say, well, I knew that Brother Matt was going to be preaching on Sunday night. That's why. Yeah, that was a great sermon, Brother Matt. Preached. Anytime the word of God is open, it's good. You say, what if we're on vacation? Go to church when you're on vacation. What, what, if, what if this? What if that? Here's all I'm saying. Why don't you be as consistent to church as you are to your job? I know for some of you that doesn't mean anything. That's a sermon for another day. I'm just saying don't live in a famine of the word of God. Let's bow our heads and I want to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this chapter. Amos chapter 8. I know that today is not a day in which there's a famine of the word of God because the word of God is everywhere. It's just people don't want it. We're living in the day talked about in 2 Timothy where men will not endure sound doctrine. But Lord, I wonder how many Christians are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. I wonder how many Christians like these people in Amos are just thinking, when is this going to be over? So I can go do what I want to do. Lord, I pray you'd give us a thirst. I pray you'd give us a hunger for righteousness. That we would esteem thy words more than our necessary food. We would realize that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I pray that there be a revival of the word of God in our lives. That we would take full advantage of the opportunities you've given us. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, thank you for being here tonight. Just want to give you a couple of reminders. First of all, don't forget uh, that there's